You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. So I think uh, we, can, uh, we can start now. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, so good evening, green friends, colleagues, and students. I can see some students too. So I'm Benedetta Brevini, I'm, the, I'm a senior lecturer in communication here at the University of Sydney and the editor with Justin Lewis of the volume Climate Change in the Media that we're launching tonight. Thank you for being here. Um, before we start debating uh, the reason for our inaction, global inaction on climate change and the role of the media, I'd like to acknowledge that we are meeting tonight on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation and I wish to respect um, to their elders, past, present, and future. The legacy and knowledge is even more relevant in times of uh, regulated and often unaccountable capitalism. The traditions and belief systems um, have always led them to regard nature with deep respect, enhancing a strong sense of place and belonging. So on the 8th of October, 2018, the world's leading climate scientists have warned that there is only around 12 years for global warming to be kept to a maximum of 1.5 Celsius raise and avoid, therefore, environmental breakdown. Uh, the report by the UN um, panel on climate change, the IPCC, was authored by 91 researchers from 40 countries and uh, cited around more than 6,000 scientific resources. It urges politicians not to delay any action and maps out pathways to stay within the threshold of the 1.5 Celsius. With um, different combination of land use, of course, and technological change, and certainly the most effective way would be to stop using fossil fuels. So how do we trigger such an action, and what part can the media play to mobilize the public and possibly to remove governments that are currently deaf to such alarming calls for the planet and for humanity? So decades of agenda-setting research show that public priorities are often more responsive to prominence in media coverage than they are to real-world trends. And that is very crucial because communication systems really play a very paramount role in the climate crisis for at least three major reasons. So firstly, there are major spaces for public representation and public debates on the issue. And they can therefore organize if they want or even disorganize public debates. Secondly, they are commercial enterprises and therefore they can push consumerism that can be detrimental in a way and can lead to a major and accelerated climate crisis. And thirdly, they are machines and they are infrastructures that can deplete scarce resources in their production, consume increasing amount of energy. Just think of the Internet of Things, of your new smart refrigerators or um, the cloud or new server farms built everywhere around the Asia-Pacific. And given that the climate crisis has a global dimension, 
Justin Lewis and I, and Justin is contributing a video that will be playing in a minute, we felt that it was relevant because of the global relevance of the crisis to um, tackle and approach these questions, these themes, um, with um, collecting case studies and examples from a variety of regions around the world, so from um, um, Australia and the Asia Pacific and China to Latin America to the US and also Europe. Um, and this is how the project uh, got started uh, around two years ago. One of the key issues that we ex examine in the book is the way in which various media um, represent the issue of climate change to the general public, but also, for example, to what extent is the climate still a matter of scientific debate? Or, for example, to what extent um, external and corporate PR or NGOs are influencing debate? And how prominent is the coverage of climate change in media coverage general? And what impact does the coverage have on a public understanding of the issue? So, as you will learn from the book, various studies have suggested already that the media um, coverage of climate change peaked around uh, 2000 and between 2000 and 2009, and then has declined globally since then. And this is a, the, this is a very interesting finding because um, you will remember the failures of the talks in Copenhagen in 2009, and uh, from that time we started seeing a decline in the coverage of climate change. Um, and, uh, and you also remember that it was certainly not just coincidental that we had a huge global economic crisis that was triggered by uh, a mortgage and, um, and banking um, failure. So from the book you will also learn that media coverage in the last decade has become really strongly event-driven. And uh, it's really episodic. And this is something that has really changed in the last uh, decade. And um, it focuses on similar events across countries. So it's, it's also another interesting finding um, of the book. You'll also discover that globally there is a societal turn in representation of climate change. So that means that um, there is a move away from debating climate change um, with a, a, a debate on the science of climate change. And there is a major focus on the politics or the economics of, of climate change. So tonight we'll be debating some of these issues, not all of them, because I would like you to read the book. And, uh, um, and I think that I'm, I couldn't be more excited to um, welcome our panelists tonight, panelists and also contributors uh, to the book. Um, and so we start with Terry Waranov. Uh, Terry is a senior lecturer in the department. Uh, I'm just introducing you, Terry. So um, senior lecturer in the department of anthropology at the University of Sydney. And after working for many years on issues related to urban social transformation in contemporary China, um, your research area has been focusing recently on the cultural politics of climate change and especially on debates around Adani. And uh, at the moment, you are also researching uh, the Barrier Reef and um, the politics um, of uh, climate change around the Barrier Reef. So then we have um, Alana Mann, also from the University of Sydney, um, the Department of Media Communication, and a key researcher in the University of Sydney Environmental Institute. Uh, she's chief investigator on the Australian Research Council project Food Lab Sydney, with partners including the city of Sydney and uh, Food Lab Detroit. 
She's the author of Global Activism in Food Politics, Power Shift, and there's a new monograph that is coming up very soon on participatory practices um, of rural and urban food movements. Um, then we have, I'll just uh, say briefly something about Justin Lewis, because we'll be hearing um, from his video of participation very soon. He's the co-editor of the book and also professor of communication at the Cardiff School of Journalism. And he has been writing on constructing, constructing public opinion, citizen and consumers, what the media tell us about political participation, and also was the editor of the previous edition in 2009 uh, of Climate Change in the Media. Uh, his latest book is Beyond Consumer Capitalism, Media and the Limits to Imagination. And uh, finally, we have Peter Hannam, and I'm very pleased he was able to join us because he's one of the few surviving environmental journalists and environmental <laughs> editors. So Peter has been at the Herald for five years, uh, working on environmental reporting. And, uh, but prior to this appointment, you've been working in business journalism everywhere, especially in Beijing. Am I correct? And um, the most challenging of his experiences, perhaps, uh, a stint in Mongolia. And um, for the drinks, it can maybe, during the drinks, it can maybe tell us something about this. So I think we'll start with the contribution of Justin Lewis, and then we'll hear from the other panelists, and then we'll open up to you. Thank you. So can you tell me a bit about the book, what it's about? So uh, this is a book about media and climate change, about the relationship between the media and the whole issue of climate change and the environment. Um, now obviously uh, there are a number of ways of approaching that and we try and reflect a whole different range of bodies of research. So some people have looked at the way in which news media have reported on climate change in different parts of the world. Um, that's clearly a, a key focus of the book. But we're also interested in, in the media as an industry in itself. So we've asked the question, you know, does the media itself contribute through its industrial processes to the process of climate change? What kind of greenhouse gases does it emit? What sort of industrial processes does it embrace or not embrace? So those are all issues that I think we deal with in the book. So it tries to take a broad approach. We look at a whole range of different issues. We look at um, you know, we look at various kinds of websites, how the web is dealing with climate change. We look at the tourism industry. So a whole range of things are looked at in the book. We try and cover a broad range. And how does it differ from the first edition? Well, it, it does differ from the first edition. The first edition came out, um, the, re the research for the first edition was probably done in around 2007, 2008, around 10 years ago. And actually that was in some ways a much more optimistic time. Uh, we now know, looking back, that the moment, the high moment in terms of the global coverage of climate change was about 2007 to 2010. So the media were taking it much more seriously than they had before. Um, they were beginning, at least some parts of the media, were beginning to cover it no longer as a controversy, but as something that was actually happening. So all the trends that were beginning to happen about the time of the first book we're moving in quite a positive direction in terms of climate change. However, since then, uh, and the background to this book, things have gone backwards. So since that period of 2007 to about 2010, coverage of climate change in most countries in the world has decreased almost year on year. So there's far less coverage of the environment, far less coverage in news of climate change than there used to be. Um, the idea that it's no longer controversy we thought that had been settled, but we keep finding instances where it is still talked about as a controversy, is it really happening, rather than it is happening and what do we do about it. 
So I think the kind of high moment that preceded the first edition uh, leads us to a much more pessimistic place now. I mean, where we are now is that climate change is definitively happening. We are definitively not doing anything about it. And we're getting very little serious media attention on it, far less than we had before, when actually the crisis is much worse than it was. So um, the, the second edition, I think, reflects that context. Um, you know, we really are in a difficult and precarious position now. Uh, so um, we need a step change in media coverage. And I think many of the pieces in the book reflect that need. Um, and, you know, and it's global. You know, it's, it's, I think the Anglo-speaking world is particularly bad in this respect. Um, its coverage has been particularly feeble. Um, but it's not alone. I mean, in other parts of the world, you, you get a similarly quite myopic view of climate change and it's not it's just not treated as seriously as other issues to do with the economy and as a consequence public opinion never really treats climate change seriously or the environment seriously if you look at the top 10 issues that most people care about it's never on there and it's never on there because people are never really prompted to say it should be on there that it should be a concern um, so yeah it, it, from the, the, the context is much more pessimistic you know, there are, I'm an optimistic person by nature, but there are lots of reasons to be quite gloomy about where we are now. What's the main takeaway from the book? I think the main takeaway is that there are so many dis different media spheres that need to change in terms of their approaches. Um, that That's going to be difficult because so much of our media environment is quite commercial. So, so in some parts of the book, for example, there's a, there's a chapter that talks about um, the, the, the way in which kind of tourist websites will have their kind of last chance to visit lists where like, you know, the Great Barrier Reef or whatever it is, if you don't visit this in the next few years, it won't be there uh, because the climate is changing. And now clearly there's an opportunity there to raise awareness of issues of climate change. But as that chapter points out, the very commercial framework in which that's being set up which is basically to sell people plane tickets to go and travel, you know, is not really conducive to solving the problem. It's more about creating the problem. So I think another theme of the book is the way in which the commercial nature of our media industries hasn't really helped because the commercial imperative will always trump the broader long-term social needs around climate change. So I think that's, that's a key takeaway from the book. Um, do you see this as ongoing research that has to be revisited in future? Will it be a third edition? Uh, oh, will there be a third edition? Um, uh, well, you know, optimistically you say, well, I hope not, because everything will be better. Or maybe that's what the third edition will, will be. It'll be, well, you know, we fixed the problem and we got better and the media coverage became far more in-depth and the, you know, the battleship was turned around. Uh, wouldn't that be lovely? Um, I, I fear that the third edition is, if there is a third edition, will be... Uh, much more panic stations, which is, you know, things really, really, really have to change. Um, uh, that's the way we're going at the moment. But who knows? Um, the, the problem isn't going away. The media's role in raising awareness or not raising awareness of the problem isn't going away. This is going to be a huge ongoing issue. It is in many ways the big issue of the 21st century. So, uh, you know, the reasons for having a third edition aren't likely to go away. Who's the book aimed at? Uh, the book is aimed, I think, at, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's academic research, uh, but I think most of it's presented in a fairly uh, 
in a fairly kind of open way. It's, you know, there's not a great deal of technical language. Uh, it's very readable. So I hope it's, I hope it's aimed really at a, an, an audience uh, that will just be interested and concerned about the issue. Uh, it's certainly, um, you know, we tried to make sure the chapters were all engaging and readable uh, and accessible. So while clearly there will be an academic audience for this book, we hope there'll be a much more general audience as well. I'll be, I'll be um, now ask, be asking Terry to um, describe and give us an outline of the contribution to the book. Um, hi, everybody. Thank you. Um, I'm here speaking about a chapter that Bene and I wrote together. Um, hang on, I'll read you the title. I can get there. Um, Ignoring Climate Change, Celebrating Coal. Propaganda and Australian Debates on the Carmichael Mine. Now, Bene told, which we co-authored, um, and Bene told me I had five minutes to give this talk, and she, um, she scared me to death, and so I have about two minutes <laughs> to speak on our chapter, but I'm happy to describe more answers and questions about it. Um, we came to this research because we were interested in asking a very particular question, and the question is, how does the Australian public discourse, by which we mean both the media and political discourse that's said on the in the halls of parliament, through the media and in other sources, how does that discourse justify Australia's ongoing commitment to coal, especially under the current conditions where we know that climate change is not only a problem but is accelerating rapidly, and also we know that coal is losing its value on the international market. So we were really interested in what kinds of arguments and discourse um, are made in the public sphere in order to justify this ongoing commitment to coal, which we still hear, of course, every day. Um, we decided to use the Adani Carmichael Mine as our case study for a couple of reasons. First, of course, it's a particularly egregious case of a potential environmental disaster, which we know, but also because it's really been at the forefront of a lot of the Australian case for continued coal exploration, continued coal export, and continued coal development. And so we thought it was a good case study. And in order to do this study, we looked up political language from uh, several sources. One was from federal parliament, and um, we spent a rather um, depressing amount of time reading the Hansard transcripts on that the That was Terry's job, mainly. Yeah, it was, it was, that, that is not edifying reading, may I tell you. Um, we also read, and more non-edifying reading, the Queensland State Assembly Hansards, and um, information in the media, much of which came from the Murdoch press, both nationally and in Queensland, as well as other uh, mainstream forms of media on the Carmichael Mine. And we were interested in using a framework around propaganda. Now, propaganda has lots and lots of definitions, and it's been theorized by many different kinds of scholars in different ways. And we chose to use a definition um, that is, this is a quote, uh, the manipulation of reality and realities in quotes, by social actors that aim to achieve a certain goal. And that was our understanding of propaganda. And we went looking for propaganda strategies in the public discourse around the Carmichael mine, both in politics and in the media. And we identified three for the purposes of this article. And I will go over them 
uh, for you very quickly here. The first are a set of relational strategies that demonize the opposition. The second is the use and the construction of oxymorons. Those are, of course, um, terms that are internally contradictory. And the third, um, not to put too fine a point on it, are lies. Um, we weren't very diplomatic about this, but there are lies out there, and that's an important propaganda strategy. Um, so let me give you an idea of each of them. First, um, demonization. In the case of the Carmichael mine, this has meant an ongoing escalation of a set of negative terms to describe and demonize any opponents of the mine. And we've watched how this has changed over time. It started with a reframing of the term activist, so that it connoted an enemy not only of the Carmichael mine, but of the national interest. So activists went from being a description of a political type of participation to a dirty word. But it then expanded and got even stronger over time and moved into the language of war and enemy combatants. Parliamentarians called members of green groups saboteurs and accused them of waging war on Australia and Australia's economy. And this language then escalated to calling anti-mining activists terrorists. And there's actually language of terrorism that's been deployed on this, as we all know, is a very loaded and potent expression that has massive kinds of political effects going forward. Um, the second strategy of propaganda that we looked at were oxymorons. Um, it's a very interesting discursive mode, and we can talk about this more if you would like later on. And in order to do this, we relied on a couple of American authors who in turn took their inspiration from George Orwell um, and Newspeak. And we found that particularly appropriate since we seem to live in ever more Orwellian times. And so we looked at the use of oxymorons. Um, first, we found examples of two extremely well-worn American oxymorons that have now been brought into Australian political discourse. You've probably heard them. One of them is the concept of sustainable mining. Think about that, that is an oxymoron. And the other is clean coal. Yep, another oxymoron. However, we also found some original Australian oxymorons that I particularly like. My favorites come from the, the late lamented George Brandis, everybody's favorite attorney general. I miss George Brandis um, in some ways. Who coined my two favorite oxymorons, legal sabotage and vigilante litigation to describe the legal cases that have been filed to hold up the approvals of the Carmichael mine. Finally, there are outright lies. It's very difficult to pin down how many there are. They're spread and sprinkled throughout the political discourse. My personal favorite came from the Minerals Council of Australia, which actually said in writing, mining's environmental footprint is tiny. Think about that. Add to this, for example, the zombie fact. A zombie fact is a a uh, fake fact that will not die, no matter how many times it's challenged, that the Adani mine will create 10,000 jobs in remote rural Queensland. Um, and these kinds of lies have been circulated repeatedly and continue to expand and, and even take over some of the public discourse. So this, in just a brief nutshell, is our argument about propaganda strategies in the media and politics around Adani. Um, the chapter is now over a year old. We wrote it more than a year ago. And maybe our next step will be to take um, 
this information and update it and see now that the Adani mine is even more in the forefront of the news, how the political uh, propaganda strategies are changing over time. Thank you. Great, Terry. So now we're moving to Alana Mann, and uh, we're going to learn uh, many things about strategies uh, of activists and um, the Sorry. the very important the very the importance of space really in uh, trying to savage, you know, the yeah. So. Yes. Thank you, Benedetta. And I'd like to thank Benedetta and Justin for including my contribution in the book. It's uh, definitely difficult to keep up with this issue. As Terry says, it's really hard in the publishing world because you write about something and a, a year later it comes out in print. And this is a very fast-moving issue. And um, the subject of my chapter is no exception to that. I was writing about the Lock the Gate Alliance which since I wrote this chapter has had huge success with the Bentley effect now going global and we have locked the gate activists going over to the UK to show them how to do it. So this is a really successful movement. The reason why I focused on it was very interested in um, what are the alternative media channels and just alternative ways of mobilising people when you are quite hamstrung by uh, media that is governed by megacorps. So this issue of um, our capitalist media system, or our, if you like, our neoliberal media system, is a theme running throughout my chapter, which is called The Politics of Place, Networking Resistance to Coal Seam Gas Mining. So as, like Terry and Benedetta's chapter, I'm focusing on energy, which has been a very clear mobilising frame for the government. Um, I've written in this chapter that we have a dysfunctional energy policy arena. I don't think many people would disagree with that. And that hasn't changed, thankfully. That's one thing that hasn't changed since I wrote the chapter. <laughs> Should I be saying that? No. <laughs> no. So um, government discourse, it will be to no one's surprise, it's market-driven, dominated by contestation over appropriate regulation, rather than the threat of coal seam gas mining to food and water supplies. So a lot of my research was based on my interest in food politics because the very important food bowls along the East Coast in particular are threatened by a lot of this mining, according to the scientific research. So um, the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association is obviously very vocal on, their pro on this um, issue, and I think this quote sums up their framing of the coal seam gas mining issue. Coal seam gas can play an important role in regional development. The industry is bringing infrastructure and investment to several rural and regional districts, providing new jobs and strengthening and diversifying regional economies, which it's very hard to disagree with. I think we'd all agree. However, the rhetoric around CSG as being the pathway to net zero emissions is highly contested. Um, the APSA that we need more gas, not less. This is the way to reduce emissions. However, US studies of unconventional 
or fracked gas projects have drawn on this uh, issue of fugitive emissions, which are a byproduct of the mining process comprised of methane, which is a greenhouse gas which doesn't have as long a shelf life, if you like, but it is actually 100 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. So the fact that it doesn't last as long in the atmosphere, and I'm sure Peter knows more, much more about this than I do, um, is being used as a little bit of an argument for... Uh, the, the benign framing of this particular energy. So this is, um, you can see some of the strategies that Terry's mentioned at play in that framing. Um, Lock the Gate, of course, um, is a grassroots organisation. And one thing I wanted to emphasise in the chapter was this neglect of uh, government and industry attention to people's idea about place place identity, place attachment, the places that we live. And along with that goes um, an utter neglect of voice. So a little bit about um, Lock the Gate. Um, I've drawn a, included a quote from Naomi Klein's book, um, This Changes Everything, which I think kind of sums up Lock, Lock the Gate as well as the broader blockade movement as it's now known. And this quote is, having the ability to defend one, one's community water source from danger seems to a great many people like the very essence of self-determination. What is democracy if it doesn't encompass the capacity to decide collectively to protect something that no one can live without? So as a broad-based alliance of people from a range of different backgrounds, and it's not to say that that's an uncontested space either, because of course there are multiple identities when we're talking about Indigenous um, stakeholders and we're talking about people who live in cities as well, who are concerned about the future of our food supply and the environment, not just rural residents. So I think that Lock the Gate ha has... Um, done politics in a new way through their outreach and their, their strategies through a desperation um, that, that the mainstream media has been unable to elevate their voices into the public sphere. And the locked gate itself, as Drew Hutton says, is a powerful symbol. It means you can't come in and expresses the determination of landowners to refuse entry to resource companies, even if the law says they may have no choice. So that in itself telegraphs very powerful values. And Lock the Gate has been very successful in using alternative media channels, including Facebook and Twitter and all the usual suspects, to uh, elevate this issue. And in a sense, Lock the Gate has become the story. So at least in the mainstream media, we've heard about this issue through hearing about the activities of this group. I want to um, draw on the work of Nick Cowdery, which I unfortunately hadn't read before I wrote the chapter, but I think he sums up very well what he calls a contemporary crisis of voice that we're experiencing. He talks about this crisis being due to um, the discourse of neoliberalism, which operates with a view of economic life that does not value voice and imposes a view of economic life onto politics, a reductive view and pretends this is the implementing of market function. And in doing so, he says it evacuates entirely the role of the social in political regulation of economics. So if we're at this position, uh, and we have a, also a media that is really complicit in this, and I think I can say that as an ex-Fairfax employee, I feel you. Um, voice, voice is about, let's remember what voice is, 
Judith Butler tells us it's a process of giving an account of oneself in the form of a narrative, and to deny this capacity to possess and share your own narrative is to deny one's potential for voice, which is a basic dimension of human life. Voice involves speaking and listening. It is an act of attention that registers the uniqueness of another's narrative and respects the internal diversity of plurality in each voice. We all have many stories embedded in multiple contexts, and it's not about individual individualism, nor does it dismiss the value of collective forms of action. And um, I think that Lock the Gate is an example of how voice challenges the silences that arise when the market speaks louder than other voices, particularly those voices that lack the opportunity to compete as a commodity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to also in more details later. So Peter, we need uh, the experience and the wisdom of a professional that can tell us what's wrong with climate change coverage. I'm going to start. Um, anyway, thank you for inviting me to this panel. I feel a bit outnumbered here, but um, in any case, um, the media, the news cycle is quite different from the academic one, uh, as probably most people realize. And the... Um, so the constraints uh, on the day-to-day -day news cycle, if you like, um, obviously different, but there are other advantages. Um, and social media and so on makes it even faster for us to pedal. So whatever I say now might be out of date <clears throat> by the time I finish. Um, more seriously, there's certain things that this book, it's w definitely worth reading. Um, it skates over issues which are a little bit difficult for me to tackle because of professional reasons. You know, Murdoch Media is a very good place to start for like the issues about in the uh, Anglosphere, if you like, on creating an alternative um, uh, theme, if you like, which undermines political action, um, distracts media, the other media, uh, and I think allows politicians to get away with uh, blatant lies much longer. So putting that to one side, and maybe that's one for the academics to talk more about. Um, there are various constraints that uh, journalists have in their day-to-day -day operations, which perhaps we can uh, speak in uh, when the question answers come. But in general, uh, resources are always going to be scarce, but the way that news works uh, means that even though, as Bill McKibben and others have said, climate change is probably the most important story any day, it's rarely the most dramatic. In fact, the times when it is the most dramatic, when there's an extreme weather event or whatever, the difficulty of providing, say, climate science attribution to a particular event, as well as uh, the sensitivities around uh, the various victims in the heat wave, the cyclones path, etc., do preclude journalism, uh, I think, to delve to uh, deeply in those issues as they kind of unfold. And of course, when things settle down and the recovery efforts begin, uh, that's often when the news cycle has moved on. That said, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago with the IPCC's uh, 1.5 degrees report came out, I think that got quite a lot of coverage. It fed into debates in the political sphere, the um, Wentworth by-election so it had a certain momentum, which um, can be often hard to pick. 
Um, likewise, and this is a tip for public relations people in the audience, um, if you're looking at the calendar, you're thinking, what's a week which might be quite quiet? This week might be one, because of Melbourne Cup puts out Victoria for much of the start of this week and a lot of the distractions. So um, there's a chance maybe to land that story about you know, wildlife or well, biodiversity suffering big time. But of course, you know, the science papers that come out are not timed particularly to these uh, convenient holes in the media coverage where you might get a greater than average um, profile for a particular uh, environmental issue. In any case, um, you know, I think uh, Sydney Morning Herald, to the extent that I can get as many stories out there as possible, uh, does try to give prominence to climate issues. Uh, it's been several years now since the uh, Herald refused to publish any climate deniers' uh, letters. Um, and, you know, it's a pretty rare day when a skeptic gets much uh, coverage or profile. And I'd say that's deservedly because the science has been known for 100 years, or so the physics, and most of the climate, the outline of science has been known since the first IPCC report in 1994. Nevertheless, um, from a reporter's point of view, when I look at what to cover, and, and uh, coal seam gas is an ongoing interesting one because it's, it's quite live. You've got, like, Pilliger, you've got a lot of... Um, process that's going through the state parliament, you've got social movement, you've got farmers, you've got drought all laid over that. Just from a sort of human perspective, it's quite interesting. But there's a lot of science that's also underpinning that, some are more resolved than others, uh, other aspects of it, um, which I think you know can provide endless uh, angles for stories, uh, and, it's a, and often it's a matter of time that um, there's competing issues. Uh, so, for instance, when I look at like a CSG story, I'm looking at like when's the next major response or when's the next... You know, Loctagate does a lot of good work with uh, freedom of information laws and that provides news kind of outside the um, bureaucratic process. Um, and we can talk maybe about post-media journalism later. Um, but there's no doubt that you know, uh, Australian Conservation Foundation, Lock the Gate, these other organizations, which have resources to kind of <clears throat> chip away at the freedom of information laws and, uh, you know, get information which bureaucrats and politicians are trying to hide, um, they're all newsworthy. And, and to the extent that I can cover them, I, I will. And I've got um, uh, the colleagues who do help, Nicole Hashem, particularly in Canberra, The Age also plus the ABC and The Guardian in particular. Um, <clears throat> so there are avenues that are, you know, these news items do surface. Now we could talk about climate disruption, maybe rebranding climate change is perhaps more useful. And I see that sort of wording creeping in um, because that's what it's ultimately about. It's systems and lifestyles and economies that are based on a certain, you know, range of uh, in climatic experiences which are likely to be breached. So perhaps, and this comes back to that sort of the, the framing, the advertising, the propaganda elements, which are like, how do you, how do you uh, use the words that maybe, you know, stick with people, make them sit up, make them pay attention, retain attention, press politicians, 
write letters or emails or social media responses, dare I say, subscribe to the Sydney Morning Herald. I think I've only allowed one of those um, advertisements. In any case, there's various ways that you can, uh, you know, respond to the news. And there's, I, I would say there's endless amounts of news. Some of it, hopefully, most of the important bits covered in uh, the Fairfax media. Um, if you, if I have my, don't have my Twitter handle up there. Yes, there you see it. At uh, P underscore Hannum, I've pinned the tweet that I put out a week or so back when I just started, I, I put it out there for, for the followers about like, what is it in the climate coverage you like, don't like, what do you want more of, how can we do a better job? Um, I'm not sure there's a PhD in, in the um, comments that follow it, but nevertheless, there's a whole range of quite, it's quite interesting thread, I think, to point to the sorts of areas, and it's obviously pretty hard to cover all of them, um, because some people say, make climate change coverage fun. <laughs> you know, tell us something how we can positively change. Um, other thing is like, you know, hold politicians accountable, pull them up every time they lie, uh, and that would all be good. But um, if you ever watch, uh, you know, press conferences or live stream, you know, the politicians generally don't open themselves up to environmental reporters. They'll mostly reveal themselves, if you like, to um, a bunch of, you know, the, the Canberra correspondents who by their nature have to thin fair, uh, uh, skate fairly thinly over a whole range of issues. I thought, and maybe this is something we can talk about in the panel discussion, the national energy uh, guarantee, um, that how that was covered out of Canberra versus how I would cover it. Um, is a different sort of process because that's, if you like, something I'm paying a lot of attention to, but the Canberra correspondents will only pay attention to that this week until it, you know, drops off and then it's refugees and it's, I don't know, Fenicum Energy or, or whatever, um, the bus or, or what is it, um, the prior... Hmm? The wheels on the bus, the uh, Queensland bus trip, whatever uh, Morrison's on now, or indeed whether... Um, journalists should be the last on board the plane when they have um, priorities called out. Um, in any case, there's, there's endless possibilities of coverage and I recommend looking at that pinned tweet, that's the top of my, um, to see what a whole bunch of people interested in this area suggested, here's how, this is what we want. Not all of that's going to be possible to, to follow up, but there's elements of... Um, and, and I'll just leave this one last point. Um, people say, well, look, climate change is difficult because it's over the horizon, it's not now, it's not so immediate. But I've certainly found that one way into um, keeping interest is through, oddly enough, the weather, because it affects people in a way that much more than the dollar or the stock market on most days. And yet that sort of features in people's news bulletins, virtually you hear it every day. But actually, weather's got enormous number of fascinating components which attract and keep an audience. Apart from the science, which everything from cyclones to you know, rain events, etc., to um, remarkable photographs, and that catches the eyes, satellite imagery, things like that, which um, are different from what uh, many of us experience. So they're kind of ways that I think attract and possibly keep an audience beyond people who are here who start out interested in this area. So anyway, there's some of the points I've put forward. Well, thank you, Peter.
I suppose um, I have a question again for you um, before I open to the public because you mentioned obviously the new the new cycle, and um, and I am always thinking in terms of what makes uh, something newsworthy and uh, how do we make climate change newsworthy? And you obviously rightly um, discussed the fact that, for example, if you have a freedom of information request, if you have some major organizations that are you know, um, you know, putting in the public domain uh, or publishing press releases, then it can be newsworthy. But can we go in much more details into that? So I'd be very interested because I think that actually that's uh, that's very important. Also, if we want to engage and mobilize the public more, so yeah. give <clears throat> us more details, some tips. <laughs> All my secrets laid out. Um, now, actually, uh, the reality is that, like, as a journalist. Uh, you get flooded with emails, people phoning you up, and, and the longer you're in this, and I've been at Fairfax 13, 14 years, five or six years covering just the environment, um, the more people you meet, the more cards you give out, the more stories you write about, the more story potential for the next round, if you like, people come back to you. And of course, then you're, you're, you're filtering out more and more and more, which takes a lot of time. Um, I find, um, you know, realistically... Uh, there's a, there's not, it's more art than science because particular editors are more interested in the subject and in a way that a story is presented than others. So you, you are kind of, you know, it's, it's moderating the message for your editors first. And, and may, maybe this is your volume three. It's like how editors get in the way of reporters, um, which is, you know, in other words, reporters may be quite interested in following up a lot of these issues, but, for whatever reason, it's uh, restrained by editors or, or they want it fitting in a certain pattern. But I find, for example, that um, there's a lot of interest in, uh, you know, what can people do about it? And, and often not enough time because it takes time to do those kind of stories. So, like, when you put solar on your roof, when you get an electric car, you know, why isn't energy efficiency part of everybody's you know, bread and butter, why don't we consume less, you know, these kind of issues. How would you go about it? Um, uh, you can look at, like, also at the other end, how do social movements kind of create a vacuum that must be filled by news? So for a while, and just as an example, about a year or so when the Four Corners reports about um, water theft for the Murray-Darling Basin, um, you know, that was... I'd been covering elements of that, but there's no way that I could have sustained editors' interest in that subject very long until it became a kind of a, a bit of a snowball, so to speak, so that you had inquiries, which then generate their own news. You had all kinds of other things come forward. And one of the people involved in this actually contacted me like a week ago with some, you know, slightly peripheral story and said, you know, like, I used to get all this stuff. People used to cover that all the time. And I said, well, look, you know, I'm sorry, like, you know, now the news caravan has kind of moved on. Um, and so in a sense, it's almost like if you've got some interesting science which is not so tied to papers which set their own you know, agenda, if you like, you have to wait till nature or whatever decides to publish your material. Um, but if you can see, like, for instance, Wentworth is all about climate and refugees, that's quite a good time probably to pitch your really good idea about some element of climate because it's possible that you're going to have a bit more of a wave to, to, to ride. 
So in a way, it's a matter of resources invested. It's a matter of time for you and having to keep producing and following, you know, the new cycle. And it's also a matter of um, like seeing something new that um, is obviously connected to sometimes other agendas as well. And also make sure that your editor is on board. It is an interesting issue about like um, how do you, you know, with every science report, say IPCC or, you know, uh, Every few years, I'll come out with a major, you know, in a, in a sense, nothing has moved on. In a, in a week or two, the Bureau of Meteorology and CSIRO will have their updated state of the climate every two years, right? And so from my point of view as a journalist, like, because I've been covering this for a while, from my own curiosity, it's like, what's changed? What's the sliver of, like, advance? And, of course, you know, in the general interest point of view, actually... They're not interested in the sliver. They just want this may be the only time they pay attention to this issue in six months. So it's balancing like, here's the news for my editor, snappy headline, blah, whereas a lot of general readers want, you know, tell me again, why does this matter? And they want a lot of stuff which isn't so newsy. Um, a, a parallel to this is the budget every year, the federal budget. You know, on the night of the Tuesday, whatever, in the 2nd of May, there's hardly any news because all the juicy bits have already been fed to the journalists in the weeks ahead. And yet there's all these reams of material out there which you have to write because it's come out. So this sort of uh, juggling between here's that new element at the top, uh, which I have to sell to my editors, versus the general readers, this is the only time I'm thinking about this for the next six months. Um, and that that is a little bit of... That's where telling stories, make it interesting, nice graphics. Um, it's the way I approach and in a way probably others will too. Thank you. No, that was very useful, I think. Um, Alana, I'm curious about uh, your research and also obviously your focus on alternative media because I want to know if in your research also around the world, you know, you've been um, collecting data in Brazil, for example, and uh, in the UK, in, in Europe, uh, in the US, and I was curious to know if you've seen in the last decade, you know, um, we saw and I mentioned that climate change coverage has declined, you know, if we consider how much the media, mainstream media are talking about this globally. And so I was wondering if you saw the emergence of the alternative media sphere and if you see something interesting also in Australia or beyond Australia. I think uh, the most noticeable thing that you see in the emergence of the alternative media channels is that link between online and offline mobilisation and protest. So I think that, that immediacy but also that ability to reach that group of concerned citizens. We've got a fragmented media sphere, sure, but when you do meet um, or manage to bring together a critical mass of people through a hashtag or something like that, and then you can also really create local interest. And that's, again, where I think most, pe most of us are really interested in what's happening in our neighbourhood. And back to Peter's point, it's sort of about what, what affects you every day. So if you can be very strategic in your use of social media and actually connect your local audience and your local or well, your neighbourhood to the global issue, 
that's that's the challenge. But that's the same challenge that's always always faced journals journalists as well, putting something into into context. Because when we talk about emissions, uh, it's it's like those numbers they throw about with the budget. It's impenetrable for most people. And I remember everyone getting really excited when we worked at the Herald and everything was going online. That went well. You know, it was like, oh, now everyone's going to be able to drill down into these issues. So when we do a story about the latest thing that's happened in Gaza, everyone can use a hyperlink and find out about the um, Arab-Israeli crisis. Has that happened? Do people do that? I don't know. We do, yeah, our attention spans, if anything, have gotten shorter. So in terms of alternative media, yes, big plus, linking... Um, online media to offline mobilisations on the ground, and Lock the Gate does that really well, so it's very much real time. Disadvantage is that, um, yeah, that, that sort of fragmentation that means you're only really talking to the echo chamber a lot of the time. And, uh, no, thank you. I mean, obviously, um, echo chambers are one of the major concern and major trouble for the public sphere in this new digital media economy. So, um, Terry, I'm also very keen to, to know more about what, you, what, what are your thoughts on um, uh, the importance of identity um, in selling propaganda or, you know, sometimes... Uh, we use the language of post-truth. Sometimes we use the language of propaganda. Um, but in the end, uh, in the US, in Canada, in Australia, we see that very often um, reliance of the identity of the people of the country has been used to generate emotions and therefore to connect more. So yeah, why a, is that being so successful? It's a very interesting topic. Um, and there's quite an interesting chapter in the book on... Um, romanticized nostalgia around mining in Australia and the idea that um, there's a very, very powerful tropes that are used repeatedly to tap into an uh, idea that the real Australia is out in the outback and real Australians are out there working with their hands somewhere in the outback. And that can be farming it can be ranching or it can be mining. But it is certainly not a bunch of effet latte sippers in the inner city um, who somehow are not, re we're not real Australians, even though, of course, we, I'm assuming that there are at least a few other latte sippers in the room, um, that we, we outnumber the, the so-called real Australians by many, many factors. But the appeal to this nostalgia that somehow the real Australia is located out there in the mining industry, and that that's what describes how Australia became to be a nation and how it gained its wealth, is still a very powerful trope that politicians rely on in order to make arguments about the importance of mining and coal. So I'm looking forward to the real Australians turning up as uh, mine rehabilitation specialists. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be a lot of they those. Are, yeah, yeah, mining, re it's, it's insane. They, I mean, there's some other interesting um, aspects to this that, that are, are very hard to just touch on. One of them is a gendered issue and the idea that, of course, these job, mining jobs are real jobs because they're jobs for men. Um, and that the other kinds of work that is increasingly available, especially in remote areas, are highly feminized jobs in the service economy, which aren't considered real men's jobs. And, of course, real Australians are real men, not real women, and they have real jobs, which are linked to this kind of 
Fordist economy that simply doesn't exist anymore for most of us. Um, but that gendered aspect is also a very, very powerful um, effect. So how do we counter this, this success? This is uh, one of my questions, the yes, question that has been, kept me really busy been in, the last, uh, yeah, in the last year. Really, how do you counter post-truth, really? So this appeal to emotion, this appeal to identity. Um, God, can I give this to you? <laughs> it's no, no, it's a, well, you know, uh, it's um, a matter of, most of my work is actually around food systems and we have this similar crisis of voice obviously in food systems because we've got extremely unhealthy food systems and a lot of people who are trying to do the right thing but they're, they're doing it in little discrete pockets and, you know, when you talk about is there a local movement, you, there will be in a, in a particular locale, but then you talk about, well, is there, is there a global food movement? No, not at this stage. So you've got, to, you've got to find, I think, the values, you know, I think. And, again, Naomi Klein talked about this when she talked about this blockadia movement. You might be very different people living in diff very different places. You might even have very different concerns but you have very fundamental values and I think that you see that with the successful groups like Lock the Gate who have managed to talk about this idea of access to resources that are healthy like water and your property a place you live so it's about it's about place and I think that everybody, that resonates with everybody. So it's like finding the common vocabulary between people. And, you know, for a lot of people with climate change, I think that, you know, most of us, even if we don't agree that it exists, we agree that mitigating some of the crap that we do to the planet is a good idea. So sometimes it's, I almost think it's good to leave the argument at the door and just get on with it. But how you motivate and mobilise people to do that, you need to make them feel like they're part of something. And this goes back to the voice idea to me. If you don't feel like you're part of the conversation, you're very unlikely to engage either in talking or listening to anybody else. Yes. So I think I'll, uh, I'd like to open to the public now just to give more voice to voices. So um, why don't we start with questions? Um, I, I just would like to hear your response to the role of um, the mining industry lobby groups because for me, I think they really manage to shape what happens in the media and we talk about what politicians talk about, talk about and it seems to me the money that the mining industry spends on influencing politicians, I mean, we haven't, I haven't really addressed it. Uh, that, to me, is the big problem. What do you think? <laughs> um, it's a very good point. Um, I did say at the start, um, Murdoch Media's problem A, um, mining industry lobby groups probably problem B. Um, they, the problem, broadly speaking, is something like 80% of our fossil fuels, actually pretty much everything that hasn't been opened up should stay unopened. Uh, all, all the um, coal reserves in the Galilee, et cetera, et cetera, uh, if we're going to get anywhere near 2 degrees, 1.5, whatever, um, that reality hasn't dawned on politicians because they're not forced to 
make that kind of a call by voters. Um, and I think part of the reason is that the, the people with uh, vested interests uh, have very concentrated interests to oppose that, and the rest of the population is dispersed and easily distracted, so hard to compete or push back against uh, that sort of issue. But um, And from a journalist's point of view, it does take a, a lot of time to unearth that lobbying because a lot of it's hidden and it's cross-borders, so you know it'll appear in state politics as funding, but it's come through the national party, you know, that, you know, it was Canberra-based um, party, so um, trailing, you know, tracing back the money. But you can be sure that there's a huge upside for any, you know, investor in coal, the power station, etc. If they can extend the life beyond what they think they've got at the moment, um, and very little to lose. And so, given that the, you know, uh, political parties are quite poor. Um, and they've got an expensive campaign to run without any sort of public finance to, to um, support it, or little public finance to support it. Um, it leaves us pretty vulnerable to those concentrated interests. Um, so yeah, that's it is a crucial point. It's something to be very wary of, and um, you know, it's difficult to cover, as I say, because they cover their tracks. You're almost relying on a decent and regular whistleblower to break ranks for some reason. I mean, that's ultimately what it's up to. So if any whistleblowers are listening... <laughs> anyway, but that's really what you're looking at, to kind of like expose the extent of it. You can guess where it is and Alex Turnbull, Malcolm Turnbull's son, is actually quite keen on pursuing this element and I suspect it's because he's also seen it quite close. Um, I'd like to come back to this word about activists. You said activists have been reframed as terrorists and I feel I do radio, I do kind of alternative music, um, media and our radio station in Melbourne is the voice for the voiceless so we interview activists all the time and I wonder why the mainstream media doesn't seem to interview those activists. We've interviewed Peter but before him on the book he um, prefaced you know, from Gloucester, we interviewed all the other people from Gloucester. We'd been interviewing them for months and years. And so our, that story was so building with our audience that they knew um, when he uh, spoke. But I wonder how we've disempowered activism. And I'll just contrast this with what happened in Canada when the IPCC report came out. They suspended Parliament and they had an emergency debate. What is Canada's response to this? And I broadcast one of the... Um, British Columbia MPs, and she spoke, and it was just an impassioned speech, and I got phone calls then. People said, that was the best part of your show. That was so fantastic. Why don't, why don't Australians speak like that? And she was just totally ardent. But I think in Canada, they're also active around the refugee issue, so that the idea of activism is presumably not such a dirty word. So why is that? Yeah, this is a great question for... I've got a, got a good personal example of that. I think it's a I think it's a really interesting frame in Australia. The the frame of the activist. I grew up in Harvey Bay near Fraser Island, and my father was a charter boat operator. And the Fraser Island Defenders Organisation in the seventies managed to stop sand mining and later logging on Fraser Island. Now my father j voted for Joe Bielke Peterson for his entire life. 
the long first 26 years of my life, they were long years. <laughs> and um, yet such a conservative person became aligned with the greenies, in effect. If you ever called him a greenie, he'd, he'd you know, he'd throw you off the boat. So I think that it's interesting. It goes back to those values again, but there is this really very negative um, idea about the activist as terrorist almost, and um, it's uh, it en ends up you being dismissed in the public sphere. Um, I, I I think we also need to resist this. This is not. I don't I don't know that any of us actually believe that activists are um, opposed to the national interest, and and we just need to actively resist this form of propaganda that demonizes activism and turns it into something that is in opposition to the national good. Um, just because it's out there as a discourse doesn't mean we buy into it or believe it, um, and, or that we should let them get away with it, really. Yeah. Well, firstly, um, I should say the book has, on that mining chapter, it's quite interesting how, like, Eureka was hailed as, see, that's where democracy was born among activists. They happened to be, you know, scrambling through the mud trying to find gold. But nevertheless, you know, activism turned into democracy and standing up for your rights and then morphed into mostly foreign-owned, <laughs> you know, non-taxpaying multinationals. Um, however, um, the issue of just going back to like the activism issue, like as a reporter, um, I happened to get involved in following the uh, Gloucester cases, CSG, and their victory slightly by accident because I was on a holiday in that part of the state and I looked at the map and thought, they're so far away, I'll go and have a look. And partly because I got to see people on the ground and visit that and so on, I had a kind of a personal touch. And I just kind of regret that, for instance, you know, next day or so there'll be, oh, sorry, yeah, next couple of days up in Mudgee there'll be a court case. You know, there's all around the state, there's so many of these, um, which I've got that on my radar, but it's like if something else came up and my editor said go and do this, then then that sort of cloud passes and, and so on. So there are so many things you could follow activism. It just happened that Gloucester became, you know, a, a sort of David Goliath, David One kind of case. Um, and uh, John Watts beat me to writing a book on it, but I wrote the preface anyway. Um, but definitely worth reading because it's sort of like how it worked and, and lock the gate as an outsider group and like do you follow the Bentley example. I, lots of fascinating subtext and I'm sure you know, it'll be worth pursuing. But um, this issue of you know, uh, branding one group as act, you know, clean coal or high emissions, low efficiency and I put in that order deliberately, um, coal-fired power stations, um, these new terms, it's still highly polluting and highly inefficient and not much more efficient than 50-year-old plants. And all that stuff has to be reminded, the population needs to be reminded about those lies um, and they have to be pricked every time they come up. However, that doesn't happen because, you know, no, none of, I'm sure the Telegraph, uh, shouldn't talk about competition too much, but, you know, their only coverage of Gloucester was to send two of their junior reporters to pretending to be analysts, uh, activists, so they could write about these lazy, you know, blow-ins who never had a job in their life versus blah, blah, blah. Unless, of course, it comes to, like, horse breeding, in which case um, miners there are the fluoro renter crowd. <laughs> they get totally branded because that's the bad type of mining, anywhere near horse breeding. So... 
Um, anyway, I, I'm fortunate that my editors, more or less, most of the time, give me the free reign to, like, on the basis of the facts, on the basis of, like, where's the law, you know, what looks like reasonable, what's logical, they give me f free reign. Um, and I'm very fortunate, and I don't think that's true of most of the other uh, commercial outlets. And, um, you know, hopefully that'll long last. But activism is an interesting issue about how do you build on. And this um, post-media journalism, post-journalism post media, I should say, uh, in that order, it, that some people think the media is, mainstream media is not equipped anymore to cover the ability of social media to activate and organize and report and challenge and so on. It's true to a certain extent, but there's still an element of politicians will take my call or they feel obliged to answer questions even if they give me, you know, road answers or so on. And they won't necessarily respond to activists in that way. They'll just figure, like, just ignore that group. So there's still a little bit of that legacy of the legacy media. Um, and, you know, uh, that's my advantage, but it's not, it's a it's finite one and, and that's not going to last forever. I think we have another question there. And then we have Hi. One there. Thank you for your time. Um, so I think earlier Peter acknowledged one of the areas where the Australian media is collectively at its weakest, the direct questioning of political leaders. So now that we know that we're the last generation that can save nature and probably humanity, uh, if environmental journalists aren't getting picked for questions at presses and the other journos aren't asking what we need, what's it going to take to get them all actually asking the hard-hitting questions of our political leaders, you know, holding their feet to the political... Uh, holding their feet to the fire before the rest of us burn. Um, Peter, would you and your colleagues shirt front, front the Prime Minister about this crisis? And what's the best question you have heard put to Scott Morrison so far on catastrophic, catastrophic climate change? Best question. Um, that's hard. I haven't had a chance. No, um, no actually, the, they don't pin him down very much on this you know, meeting Paris at a counter, you know, this emissions junk. You know, it's going up and it's supposed to go down and the trajectory and all the infrastructure around uh, gas that's being built, you know, is massively uh, locking in emissions and emissions growth. And frankly, if you could properly monitor what the leakage is and what the res remnant leakage will be long after the wells are piped or plugged or whatever they do, um, you know, we are not estimating at all well what um, what emissions Australia is contributing. And as soon as we one day, if we ever get around to it, we realise we've, you know, we're not just cantering upwards, we're probably, you know, in a near vertical, anyway, certainly rising fast. Um, so as to shirt fronting, yeah, that probably isn't recommended. But, you know, I would say that the media... Um, is sensitive to, you know, the, the politicians do do doorstops and they do turn up in various places and often there are cameras there. And you've sometimes seen when, when Citizen X raises a question, instead of being part of the, you know, uh, meet and greet footage and then say, but Mr. Prime Minister, what about emissions or what have you? Uh, then just out of novelty, the, the media will sort of, well, what's this? 
you know, is this going to be a bit of a fracas? Is it going to be a contratop? Whatever. Um, and, and that, frankly, may get more attention than a journalist asking a question, one of ten, and there's a five-second sound bite somewhere out in the middle of it carved out. Um, but, yeah, certainly the um, Frydenberg, Greg Hunt, and I'm sure Melissa Price um, will prefer to speak to um, a select, you know, sort of regular Canberra crowd because the Canberra crowd is probably want to stay on board to an extent. Um, uh, and, and you get possibly a softer touch. I'm not denigrating my colleagues because they do try to break news and they often do. Um, but they are also weighing up the fact that, you know, if you burn <laughs> all your ministers, then you're not, you know, you're not in line for the next drop. Not the fact facts gets many drops from these guys anyway. But nevertheless, um, these are kind of the calculus that goes on in a Canberra, you know, reporter's mind. I'm not sure that answers many of your questions. Um, Howard Witt, uh, Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, my question is about potentials for increasing the impact of academia in this process. Uh, now, I don't want to be ungrateful, Sydney University, for putting these on. There is a great impact there. But to Peter, um, and we've heard that how the activities of activists have become the story uh, rather than the story itself, and perhaps school children going out on strike will become the story rather than CO2 emissions, and doctors for the environment are now doing good things with no time for change, and farmers for climate action are now doing things as well. Um, how can academics also um, have an impact in this way that would help you, and how do the academics think they could be more out there and be part of the story rather than just their academic work and books? Thank you. Oh, this is an excellent question. So we can start with the two academics and then... Uh... This is a very important question and universities are recognising that this is a need and so we are now being measured for our impact and our engagement, which means that we do actually have to take this stuff out into the public, which is a great um, motivation for most of us, especially those of us who'd like to think that we do work that is actually contributing to solving some of these problems. It's a, it's a massive frustration to work still in an industry where a lot of your KPIs rely on being published in places where you know the people most affected by the problems will never get a chance to see your work. So, and that your media work actually is not recognised when you go for promotion. It's a non-traditional publication. Things like that. So if you are of the bent of many of us and you like to write blogs, you like to talk to journalists, you like to do activities on the ground that don't necessarily come up with any um, formal publishing uh, outputs, um, you, just, you just need to, I think, play a role in building the relationships between the people and creating the opportunities for the people who you're doing work with in your research to have a voice. So, you know, when I research food 
issues. I want to talk to farmers. I want the farmers to be the people who are talking in my work. And fortunately, if you are lucky enough to have a job in the academy, you get paid to talk to people. And um, I think it's all about a personal choice in terms of how you generate interest around your, your research and how you get those topics out into the – and those voices again out into the world. Yeah, and don't, don't um, underestimate the impact um, of the news media cycle because the news media cycle, you know, is uh, quite, as we know, hectic. So like the activists, the academics as well, might find it hard sometimes to uh, produce something that can actually be of interest for a specific media outlet. And this is an hurdle that we always find and an obstacle as people that are very keen to see their work out there. But this is a, the kind of event that actually you know, can help us also being more um, like um, in connection with the public. I would like to mention community radio and local media all over it. If you're doing something about a community, you will get interest from the media, certainly. Yeah. I, I should just add, if there's any academics in this room, um, give journalists your mobile phones, be available, you know, through the weekends. That, that always helps. Um, from an academic point of view, by the way, the climate science... This underpins a lot as well. Um, important sort of processes of understanding the areas, you know, uh, that if not they're working on, they might be ready to comment on. And as many as a time that if I'm, if I've got an, a science paper that suddenly the editors are interested in, which is publishing the next morning, um, and to find some academic who will quickly read and give me a cogent answer about what's new, what's special, what's unexpected, or even why it's not like, you know, still have doubts or so on. You have and our numbers now. Yes, I do. Thank you. Um, but that's helpful um, in terms of that being readily available. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Jeff Gordon. Um, it's always struck me that uh, the words ecology and economy have a common root in the, the Greek word for a household. Uh, the Econ the, econ the, the economy is actually a subsystem of the whole of the environment of the ecology, yet we seem to focus all the time on the economy and that we report minute variations in stock markets and that sort of thing. And we have a business section in the paper, uh, but we don't have uh, a, an environmental section in the newspaper. We have business programs after the news on TV. We don't have an environmental uh, program. And I just think that somehow or other we need to raise the profile of... of uh, that's, there's a contradiction there. And I think I thought one way of looking at this might be to look at the way we construct the GDP. The GDP at the moment, we only count money. If we dig up coal and sell coal, we make money and, and it's, a, it's a net profit. But if we were to regard our natural environment as part of the wealth of the nation we would be just taking one form of wealth in the form of coal and moving across to another column on the ledger in the, in the form of money. So we're not really actually uh, doing anything. And it's all, it always uh, seems strange when you read, um, for instance, in the recently there was, uh, there's been some news about 
mining uh, applications for the Gulf of um, the, the Great Australian Bight. And one of the oil companies was saying that um, uh, if there was an oil spill, it would be positive for the e uh, economy because it would create uh, jobs for the local uh, um, towns cleaning up the oil spill. Anyhow, I was just wondering if we could get a, 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 somebody like Ross Gittins, who explains the, uh, regularly explains the uh, economy very well, and, and get somebody equivalent to him explaining all the ins and outs of the various ecological issues that we are ignoring. Um, if, if you want to write that in a letter to the editor or email tomorrow, and everyone else say, this is what we want, um, the, um, you know, the editors have various ways to tell interesting stories, and online you can see the traffic. Um, and, but they also are sensitive to uh, dyed-in-the-wool, say, Herald readers, what are they interested in keeping them interested so selfishly, I say, write them a letter. Um, but more seriously, you're right. Um, in fact, it's, it sounds like I better write a story about this. Um, the uh, ability for the ABS to monitor all range of things, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, um, probably it would be good to look at where there might be an example internationally where they do this in another, you know, maybe a Scandinavian or Nordic country, I should say, is probably doing it already. We can steal their ideas. And perhaps the next change of government at a federal level, they could enforce it or make it a, a regular, you know, along with, as you might have seen, the, um, there was a fight over the emissions, quarterly emissions that Australia releases. And the federal government, the, the Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison government were just playing with those numbers in such a way to bury it. But those are the kinds of numbers you should have up there with GDP every quarter uh, on a regular basis, analysed, uh, examined for the failings in them, the way that, for instance, land clearing, you know, Queensland lifted the controls and it went through the roof and somehow Australia's, you know, LU, LUCF, the land use change and so on, actually kept going down in the biggest land clearing state. And if you weigh that up and you think, you know, something's missing here. Um, but to have that in a regularized um, uh, process is the kind of thing that a minority government might be forced to do, even before the next election, um, which sounds like an interesting story. I think we had another, yes, Ms. Minibuji. Hi, I'm, I'm Michael Molitor. In the, in the late 80s, I was part of a group of um, postdoctoral fellows between Harvard and MIT around climate change. And we, we, um, we decided in 1988 when James Hansen testified before Congress that climate change was here, that we were going to do more than simply be academics. Um, we were going to try to be a, a voice. So between the 14 of us, I think we've been on 324 television programs. I was a science advisor on the film The Day After Tomorrow. Um, I worked with Davis Guggenheim on, on uh, An Inconvenient Truth. I traveled around the country. And in 2009, we changed our name as a group. We're not called, we're not called Fight Club. And we call ourselves Fight Club because the first rule of Fight Club is, is don't, don't, talk about, don't, don't, don't talk about Fight Club. And we decided the best way to address climate change is, is not to talk about climate change. Right? And so we've taken a completely, we were all um, 
in the Copenhagen negotiation in 2009. One of us is a minister. Two of us are, are corporate, are chairmen of companies. We have a university president in that group. Um, and our focus now, because we have about a decade, is to try to hit uh, the problem at its core. And the problem at its core is that we went from 52 to 1 globally, money being invested in high carbon emitting activities to low carbon activities. We're down to about 27 to 1. Right? At the end of the day, institutional investors that control $130 trillion, this is, this is the challenge. I, I love grassroots uh, communication of climate change. It has to continue, but we've got a decade. Right? So I'm, 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 maybe I'm pleading here with, with, with Peter. The really interesting issue is we're emitting 50 billion metric tons of carbon. Right? So if you're, forget about the environmental externalities or the social externalities. That's an enormous amount of waste. It's the largest waste stream produced by humanity, right? So that tells you that the underlying system is insanely inefficient. So just ask yourself a question that no one on the planet asks, no journalist asked, you've, you've never seen this, is can we drive a modern economy in the 21st century on an energy system that is the most inefficient system that we have on the planet? And the answer is no, right? So the thermodynamic efficiency of converting chemical bonds in fossil fuels into value doesn't work anymore, even if you don't have any greenhouse gases. So as much as I'd like, we'd like to see more, more advances in the, in the communication, we've got about a decade. And in, in our view, the 14 of us, we're completely focused on changing the equation about how institutional investors value that. There was a great piece. Did you, Peter, did you write the piece that appeared in today's Sydney Morning Herald? I'd like to claim credit, but it's Ruth Williams in Melbourne at The Age, yeah. and she's been watching that consistently over some time, so it was a good piece. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if everyone is in this room, you're here, you're not a climate skeptic if you're in this room, right? You want to see a lot more action on climate change. Um, th this question of institutional investors, right, and how they value this is critical to, to being able to do something meaningful and moving the needle in, the, in one decade. Thanks. Thank you. Yes, we have two questions, and then uh, we close. Hi, Lisa Upton here from the Climate Council. Peter, I wanted to ask you about the notion of balance as a journalist. Uh, and I'm not talking about giving voice to climate change deniers. I'm talking more about um, you have a view of all these things, obviously, but you do a story about Adani and you have to give the voice of the person from the mining industry. How do you go with those questions of balance when you reflect on what you talked about before, about propaganda and about clean and oxymorons and things like that? How do you handle that? Um, I mean, it's definitely a case that if you're attacking whoever, government, company, person, they get the right of reply. And, uh, of course, the right of reply might come back as nonsense. <laughs> so you actually do have a bit of dilemma. Whereas you could say, you know, Adani gave us an answer which made no sense or it was irrelevant to the question. Um, but you can't really say that because then it looks like, you know, you're editorializing. So you, you have to say what they say and leave it to the reader to read between the lines. So that, of course, kind of makes for a, you know, wait a minute, they say the opposite. One of them is not telling the truth. Um, but, you know, you, I guess, and fairness is an important part because activists will say things that are wrong too. And 
just saying it in a sense doesn't mean it's true either and so you've got to sort of have journalistic judgment about you know um no i'm not going to run that because it doesn't stack up and you should go and check your numbers um and you can say that if the if Adani gives you 10,000 jobs and it's not the 10,000 jobs and you say they say 10,000 jobs but in a court in Queensland it came out as 1404 or whatever it was um 1000 yeah that's right 1000 something yeah. yeah yeah some you know it's a major difference a big difference so you can i guess um bracket um to give a context i suppose which is a type of balance but you know um you do as say mainstream media i think has to stand by the facts and you got to be held to it and when i argued with Frydenberg, for example, I'd say, you know, you point one fact that I've ever got wrong. You know, just point one thing, just because I'm not saying that national energy guarantee was the best thing ever, you know, because I didn't think it was the best thing ever. Anyway, but nevertheless, you had to give them right a reply. And, you know, because it's Sydney Morning Herald, probably you give them a higher, possibly than um, you could argue is warranted. But it's important to stay as much as possible, in fact, entirely poss uh, you know, anchored in the facts. Of course, you know, the order of them can also inform the reader where you think the truth lies. Thank you. I'm taking the last question. Um, Peter, how do you think that the upcoming merger of Fairfax and Nine will change the nature of climate change reporting? And as the media landscape grows more and more consolidated amongst the big players, what do you see the role of kind of independent, smaller publications like Crikey and the Saturday Paper and things like that in shaping and having any sort of meaningful contribution to the debate? Yeah, I suppose I'd be, I'd be careful how I phrase this. Um, actually, the November 17th, I think it is the uh, shareholders that the two companies decide whether they merge. And so maybe it'll fall over because things have changed since it was announced. Um, you know, they're two slightly different news organizations with different news values. And naturally, there's concern in the Herald that approach to a whole range of, um, of uh, journalism might be different if it's a takeover of Channel 9. And it is a takeover. It's not a merger. You know, there's one, one, half is a bit more than the other. Uh, they pick all their people and they keep the ones that they are familiar with. Um, I'm hopeful that they'll realize that the news benefit or the brand benefit, I suppose, of the Herald is worth retaining. That's why they took it over. But who knows, maybe they break it up and spin that thing out for someone else to pick up. Um, but we'll see how that plays out. Nevertheless, um, uh, this issue about how does the um, news economic model, if you like, support things like climate change coverage or environmental coverage? Um, you know, is it, does it support any less than showbiz or, you know, whatever? Um, we'll have to see. But there's no doubt that it's on a downward trajectory. So whether the Saturday paper or Crikey or others, you know, they've got a, Saturday's paper got a wealthy backer, um, you know, Guardian is supported by a, a, a auto parts fund, I think it is. Um, you know, uh, 
unless somebody steps forward and says, maybe this is Canon Brooks <laughs> with, uh, is he listening? How he's listening in the audience. Um, but a new economy, for example, it supports, you know, there's enough of a niche. Um, but hopefully, if the economics, if people cared enough about the wildlife, you call biodiversity, but maybe we should call it wildlife because that's what it is, you know, hopefully there'd be enough of a support that could, you know, out there that could maintain journalism, you know, post-merger, down the track when one day the Herald closes. Yeah, so I would like to close probably on a more positive note, uh, reminding, reminding us that um, we have other model of uh, funding uh, for journalism and public service is a model that has been very successful throughout Europe for many years and also in Australia. And, uh, and I think that actually perhaps the way forward will be to finally recognize that we need to have climate change reporter, like reporting as some of a crucial public service obligation at this stage, also in light of the recent IPCC report. And, uh, you know, we, start, we need to keep uh, mobilizing the public to recognize that funding for the ABC is crucial so we can have a special science uh, um, section and uh, science report and, uh, and all of that because, you know, it's not that journalism can be only funded through commercial models and perhaps uh, in this day and age, uh, digital media economy, the way it's working now, where content has less and less relevance because it's all about how much content we can spread throughout social media, maybe the answer is to fund more public service journalism. So I just wanted to close it this way. So thank you so much for coming out tonight. Thank you for being here. Thank you to our panelists. Thank you for the Sydney Environment Institute for supporting us and to Nathan especially and to Eloise here and to media at Sydney as well. Uh, as you can see, we have flyers everywhere. If you want to um, consider buying the book, um, there is a 30% discount. So thank you again and um, just uh, stay for some drinks if you have time.